Amen. Amen. John's Gospel, chapter 1. John's Gospel, chapter 1. As we were singing that song, I Need You More, I was reminded of this principle. The strength in God-reliance versus the weakness of self-reliance. Something God is continually reminding me of and teaching me every day. How I can be so strong when I rely on God and so weak when I rely on myself. And God wants to teach us to be more and more reliant and dependent on Him. What a great song and a great reminder of that principle. Tonight we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of John. And again, each week, I, I don't know what we're going to get to and, and where we're headed in this, but we'll get as far as, as, God, uh, as God wants us to. But I'd like to pick it back up in verse 6 of chapter 1. Last week, John introduced us to the Word of God. And we saw the significance of the Word of God and why John chose to describe Jesus as the Word of God and the fact that in Jesus is the light and life of God to men. And we saw the wonder of Jesus, began to see some of the wonder of Jesus. Soon after, John briefly introduces us to the Word of God, he introduces us to the one who introduced the Word of God to the world, if you will, through his earthly ministry, and that was John the Baptist. And so we read in verse 6, a man came, sent from God, whose name was John. John the Apostle, who writes this gospel, never referred to himself as John. He would refer to himself as the apostle that Jesus loved or something like that, but he never referred to himself by name like he does John the Baptist. He says of John the Baptist, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that everyone might believe through him. And we ended last week talking about the power of our own personal testimony because what John was doing was sharing his own personal testimony about the light of God, about the Word of God. He, call, he was called by God and sent from God to testify, to witness. And so I wanted to encourage all of you because the, John says here in verse 7 that, that God knew that some would come to believe in Jesus through John's witness, through his personal testimony. And so we saw last week not only the power of the Word, but the power of our personal testimony. And so I sort of challenged and encouraged each of you who were here last week to write down your personal testimony. And I shared with you the fact that it didn't have to be long. In fact, my encouragement to you was make it no more than one page, double-spaced. But in that personal testimony, include briefly what your life was like before you came to Christ, how you came to Christ, and what your life has become after Christ. So the three key words there are before, how, and after. And you see this pattern throughout the New Testament, especially with the Apostle Paul. When he shares his testimony briefly, it's always a little bit about what his life was like 
before he met Christ on the road to Damascus. Then he shares the story of how he met Christ and recognized Christ on the road to Damascus. And then what his life has become after. This week, to start out, here's what I'd like to encourage and challenge you with. If you're willing to do this, if you've never done this before, literally took time to think through and write out your testimony, I would also like to encourage those of you that are wanting or willing to do that, to share that with a couple trusted friends or family members, whoever you feel comfortable with. Don't share it with somebody who's going to start being critical Share it with somebody who will just listen. But somebody that you trust, and that if you desire some feedback, that they would be willing to give you some honest, yet in love, feedback about it. And and the reason I encourage you to do that is, the more you begin to share your personal testimony, the more it will become a part of you, the more you won't have to refer to it written down anymore, and the more you will be able to just extemporaneously, when the opportunity presents itself, even unexpectedly, just sort of flow into this conversation with someone about the before, how, and after of Jesus Christ in your own life. And and the main thing I think that that I want to encourage you with, and and I, I think God wants us all to be encouraged with, is this. Don't, don't doubt the power of your personal testimony in other people's lives. So many Christians are like, well, you know, my, my testimony's not, you know, flashy or fancy or nothing spectacular happened or whatever like that. Folks, I'm telling you, don't buy into that. God wants us to learn to share our personal testimony. And I'll even go a little bit further, and then we'll dive into the passage tonight. God not only wants us as Christians to take opportunities to share our personal testimony with unbelievers. But there will be times where our personal testimony of our own Christian life and the ups and downs and trials and triumphs and all that that we've went through, he will also at times want us to share with certain Christians in order to encourage them by the things that we've went through, or maybe I should say the things that God has brought us through. So don't be ashamed or afraid or doubt the power of your personal testimony and how God can use it in people's lives. As I shared tonight, even in my prayer, you know, there's that verse in Proverbs, iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens his own friend. And the concept there is that iron must come in contact and interact with other iron. And that's the only way that 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 iron then can be sharpened is to come in contact with other iron. The only way that Christians, that we can become, going back to even Sunday's message, all that God created us to be is not in isolation, but in interaction and connection with each other. God designed it that way. He made it that way. You and I will never be able to be all that we could be by ourselves. 
We become who God created us to be when we are connected and interacting with other people of God who are going in the same direction that we are. That's that iron sharpened iron principle. So in verse 6, when John writes, a man came sent from God, I want to go back to that phrase, sent from God. God is always sending His people into the lives of others. Always. God did it with John the Baptist. God did it with the apostles. And God wants to do it with us as well. And when you see that phrase, sent from God, be thinking about maybe, who is God or who does God want to send me into a life today? And maybe you don't know specifically of anybody, but maybe that's a a prayer or something that you could begin to ask God. God, is there somebody that you want to, to uh, a life that you want to send me into to be a light, to be a witness, to testify? Because God is always sending us. The great commission of Jesus Christ at the end of the Gospel of Matthew to all of His followers is to go. In fact, in the Greek, it's not even go. It's as you are going. Jesus actually uh, takes, in a sense, for granted that we will be going as the normal course of our Christian behavior. And that as we go, we will make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, whatever I have commanded you, and I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. Go. Go. And as we are going out there in our community, rubbing shoulders with people, out there at work, out there at our schools, wherever we are, as we go, God is sending us from Himself into the lives of others to witness, to testify about the reality of Christ in our own life. This man's name who was sent from God was named John. The same name, obviously, as the writer of this gospel. The name John means Jehovah is a gracious giver. And what God spoke to me about was, is my life even a reflection of that truth? Jehovah is a gracious giver. Do I go through life and carry myself as a follower of this gracious God and this generous God? Do I live my life in a way that sort of shares with others how grateful I am, how thankful I am for this gracious, giving, generous God that I know personally? Living a life of gratefulness and gratitude and thankfulness. And then in verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light. We talked a little bit about this last week, but I wanted to go back to this point. The word witness here means that real strong witnesses, if you will, for God, are those who really, really believe, obviously, what they say. And that, in a sense, others can tell whether we really believe this and and these are our convictions or not. And, and of course, the Bible encourages us to, to develop and have strong convictions about God and what He said. For this very reason, that the stronger witnesses are going to be those who are very confident and very clear and 
and live by such strong convictions. And the reason being, because this Greek word for witness here is the Greek word martyria, where we get our word martyr from. And, and the reason why that's connected is because many times those who were being witnesses literally had to give up their life because of what they believed. That's how strongly they had to believe in it. That they believed in it so strongly that they were willing to die for what they believed. And, and what God is simply saying, that He may never call any of us to actually die for what we believe, but the effectiveness of our witness to others really will be based on how strongly we believe it. Do we believe it strongly enough to even die for it and lay our lives on the line for it as a witness of Jesus Christ? And again, he writes, we are to witness too and testify about the light so that everyone might believe through him. It's just a reminder, folks, that others can come to faith in Christ through us, just as they did John the Baptist. That's why God leaves us here on earth. That's why God calls us to be the people that He calls us to be. Because He wants us to be that light, that salt to all around us. Because it is through our witness and our testimony that people can come to believe in Him. Now in John's day, John the Apostle, the one who's writing this, even in his day there were people who worshipped and followed John the Baptist rather than Jesus. And so I think that's part of the reason why in verse 8, he says, he himself was not the light. John the Baptist never claimed to be the light. He just claimed to be the one to testify and witness to the light. Which is what he goes on to say in verse 8. John never wanted to call people to follow him for the sake of following him. If they followed him, it was then in turn only for him to turn them towards Jesus and get them to follow ultimately Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 9, the true light, the real light, the genuine light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. To me personally, this is a very important phrase that I don't want to pass over quickly in the Gospel of John, found in verse 9, when it says, the true light who gives light to everyone. One of the most asked questions through the years of being a pastor is a question sort of framed like this. Well, how can God hold people accountable who've never had a Bible who've never heard about Jesus Christ, how, how, can, how can they be judged? How can that happen? And the Bible, in several places, Romans chapter 1 would be one place to go, where the Word of God talks to us about the fact that God has given every human being light. And that based upon their response to that light, if they respond positively to that light that He gives to every human being, God will make sure that they get more light. For instance, creation. 
All of humanity has creation that the Bible says is a witness to the Creator. And that they are without excuse. Even if they had no other witness besides creation itself, that would be enough to get them going in the direction towards the true Creator. And if they had any questions and God knew that their heart was open and genuine, He would make sure that they were able to get more light because they were headed towards that light. And don't miss now in John 1.9 what John says. John says not only is there an external light of creation that's given to every human being, no matter where they live, but that God gives an internal light of Himself to every human being. That's why no human being will be able to stand before God and say, God, I didn't have a chance to come to know you in a personal way. Because the Bible teaches that not only does God give a very sufficient external witness of creation, but that God actually gives an internal witness to every human being about Himself as their Creator. And we've seen this throughout history. If some person, and this is always what's used, so I'll just use it. If some person in deepest, darkest Africa, I don't know why Africa is the only place, but anyway, if somebody in deepest, darkest Africa responds positively to the external light of creation and to the internal light that Jesus, their Creator, gives them, then God will make sure that they continue to get other light to eventually lead them to the truth and gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about the missionaries that God has sent from Himself to Africa. I'll name one, David Livingston, that everybody's heard of. See, God, because God is a just God, God will never turn anyone away unjustly. But because God has given ample, sufficient light to every human being who's ever lived, the Bible clearly teaches no one, I don't care where they lived, where they grew up, where they were born, I don't care how remote, every human being has always had the witness of creation, Romans 1, And this witness that John talks about in chapter 1, verse 9, that Jesus Himself, the Word of God, the One who expresses the mind and will of God to human beings, has in a sense put a witness of Himself within every human being. And He's coming into the world. Verse 10. Here's an amazing verse. He... The Word of God, the Creator of all the universe, was in the world, and the world was created. It came into existence. It was made by Him. But the world did not recognize Him. Now, obviously, he's not talking about the mountains. and the, Here, he's talking about the mass of humanity. 
He's saying, now here's an amazing thing. We've talked about the power of the word. The significance of the word. We've talked about the power of personal testimony and personal witness. But here's a verse that also reminds us that as great as the light is, and we learned last week that the darkness will never extinguish the light or overcome it. Yet in verse 10, we do have this truth. That the darkness that men are in is very powerful. It's very powerful for this reason. How can you and I explain the fact that the creator of the universe, their creator, our creator, literally came into the world and yet the world that was created by him, his creation, his people that he created, did not recognize him. That reminds us that though, again, the light is always more powerful of God and will never be overcome, it also reminds us how powerful the darkness is. Because when people are in darkness, they can't even recognize their Creator. They can't even understand and perceive who their Creator is because of the darkness. And then John goes on to make even a greater point. In verse 11, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Uh, Here, I think personally, he's talking about the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And he's saying, and here's here's another (laughs) thing. In spite of all the extra light that the nation of Israel was given throughout their history, God gave them Moses and the commandments and God gave them the feasts and God gave them the sacrificial system and and God gave them all these messianic prophecies that pointed to Jesus, the Word of God coming into the world, the light. In spite of all this extra light, even they, most of them, did not receive him. They did not accept or acknowledge who he professed to be. Think about that. I mean, John, remember this is the reflective gospel. This is the gospel and this is the book of the Bible that if you, none of us should ever rush through any books of the Bible. Take it slow. But this especially is a book that we should just, contemplate and ponder and meditate the things that John is saying because they're so profound. And John wants us to think about the fact that the Creator came into His own creation and nobody recognized Him. And He even came to those He gave all this extra light to besides creation, besides even the internal witness, and most of them did not accept or acknowledge Him. Wow, that shows us the power of darkness that exists and has existed throughout all of history. But not everyone rejected Jesus, which is why in verse 12 he writes, but to all who have received him, who those, to those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. Received him. 
This word means to choose. In other words, every human being has to choose Jesus Christ for themselves. God has no grandchildren, only children. Every person must choose Jesus for themselves. And then this word also means not just to choose, but to become a companion. It's more than just, I choose you. It's, I'm now a companion. I'm now following you. That's implied in the word received. In fact, I want to illustrate the concept of received even using this story. This helps me to understand received. I could have a very bad, maybe life-threatening disease. I could go to a doctor, and in my mind, and even in my heart, I could go, okay, I trust this doctor. I trust his knowledge. I trust his experience. In the course of meeting with this doctor, this doctor gives me a diagnosis and then prescribes medicine that he believes will help me with my health problem. So I can believe in the doctor. I can even understand and believe in the diagnosis and trust his diagnosis. I can even trust that the medicine that he's prescribed for me will help me. But the only way it will truly help me is if I take it. And that's receiving it. I've got to take the medicine. And there's a lot of people down through history who they know Jesus. They know about Jesus. They might even be intellectually convinced that Jesus is God and maybe that He died for their sins. But until they personally take the medicine, they have not received Him. That's the only way we receive Him. is to literally choose Him for ourselves and become His companion. And John says, though, when we receive Him... And that means to John, we believe in his name. We put our trust, we put our confidence, we rest our whole being in his name, meaning the embodiment of all that he is. Then he gives us the right. Again, note, we don't earn the right. We don't work to become God's children. The only way one becomes a child of God is it's a gift. But he also reminds us that that gift is a privilege because that's what the word right here means. It means it is a privilege that carries with it great responsibility. And God gives us that right To become God's children. Note something. That many people throughout the world and throughout the history of the world didn't get. And that is this. All human beings 
all human beings have always been God's creation. Yes, He's their creator. But not all human beings are God's children. We're not all God's children. The only ones who are God's children are those who have received Jesus Christ and truly believed in His name. And when God knows that this person, anyone, truly has received Him and believes in Him, then God grants Him the right, the privilege, to become His child. That's the only way we become God's children. All God's creation, but not all human beings are God's children. By the way, in using the term God's children, He is also reminding us of this. That God always desired to be intimately connected with us. Because this term children is a term of intimacy and affection and closeness. In other words, that's why God chose to use sort of the the family dynamic and words of a family to describe His family, those who came to faith in Him. Because He wants us to understand that far from the gods that man has made up down through history, that was cold and distant and uncaring and could care less if there was a God about those that He created, the true God, the genuine God, the God of the Bible, has always revealed Himself as one who wants to be closer to us than we probably do to Him. And if there's one thing I want to leave in your minds tonight, in these few minutes we have left, it is this. How close and how much God wants to be a part of your life. How much He wants to help. How much He wants to support. How much He wants to be involved in your life. The only barrier is not God's unwillingness to be involved in our lives. It's our willingness to allow God to be a part of our lives. Because John says, He came, verse 11. We didn't come to God, He came to us. He sought us out. John says in 1 John, we love Him because He first loved us. He always made the initiation. He's always the one pursuing us. And He did it to the extent that John says, and we're going to get to this later on, that the Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. Now, I want to go back though to verse 12. To all who have received Him, to those who believe in His name, He has given the right to become God's children. Now He says, children not born by human parents or by human desire or a husband's decision, but by God. In other words, He's simply saying again, this relationship with the God of the universe wasn't through our initiation. It wasn't by our will. It wasn't a decision that we made to pursue God or go after God. 
We were in darkness. We were dead in sin. It was only God's decision. And, and it, was, it came all about by God, not by us. Some people misunderstand the fact that they say, well, when the Bible tells us to believe or have faith in God, isn't that a work? No, faith isn't a work. Faith is a response to God's work. God's already done everything. Faith is just simply responding to what God has done or is doing. That's what faith is. It's not a work. We are not saved by works, but by grace through faith. And Paul even says, that's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So he's again reminding us that, that the God of the universe, that many times we think is so distant and, and he's not there for us and why can't we hear him and why is he silent and why doesn't he care and all that. John is saying, look, if there's any disconnection, it's not from God's point of view. It's not like God gets tired of us or God doesn't want to help or support in any way. It's not like God ever distances Himself from us. If there's a distance, it's us, not from Him. Because He has always been the one to come to us. In fact, He's going to... He left the glories of heaven, assumed a human body to get close to us. In fact, in the few minutes we have left, we'll pick this up in John next week. I want to take you back to the Old Testament, to the book of Second Chronicles for a few moments. Second Chronicles, chapter 16. I want you to look at verse 9. It's a verse that's taken out of context or taken out of why it was said. So I want to come back to it, but I want to read it. It's probably familiar to most of you. And then I want to share with you what it means and why it should be a great encouragement to all of us. Second Chronicles 16, verse 9. Certainly the Lord watches the whole earth carefully and is ready to strengthen those who are devoted to him. Let me give you the background of this. These chapters in 2 Chronicles at this point is about King Asa of Judah. King Asa of Judah was one of the good kings. He started out great. He didn't end well, but he started out really well. Asa did a lot of good things for the people of Judah. And early on in his reign, he had amassed an army in Judah of about 500 and some thousand men. But at that time in history, the Ethiopians were coming against him with an army of about a million. And so King Asa goes out, relies on the Lord, humbles himself, says, God, I hope you're, you're here to help the weak because we are weak without you. And there's no way that that your people can go against this army of a million. We need you, God. Will you help us? And the Bible says that God fought their battle and God delivered the Ethiopians, the million-man army, into the hands of King Asa and Judah. And that 
though Judah's forces were half the size of Ethiopia, Judah won the battle because they relied, and King Asa relied on the Lord. Fast forward a few years later, Israel is now coming against Judah and getting ready to attack Judah. Instead of King Asa doing what he did before, humbling himself, going to the Lord, saying, Lord, we are weak without you. We need you. Will you fight our battle against the nation of Israel? He doesn't do that. Instead, he goes to the king of Syria. Hmm, I think we're hearing about that nation, aren't we? And he goes to the king of Syria, and he basically says, we will give you all the wealth and the treasuries of Israel. We'll give you all this money, and if you just help us to fight off Israel for us. And the king of Syria thought about it. He thought, you know what? That's, that's a good deal. That's a, that's a lot. I'll do it. And what Asa did by doing that was actually strengthened Syria. And here's the deal. God wanted to eventually not only give Israel into the hands of Judah and Asa, He wanted to give Syria into the hands of Asa and Judah. But because of what Asa did, Syria was stronger now and it wasn't going to happen in Asa's lifetime. In a sense, one of the lessons we learn here is that God's plans for us may be greater than our plans for us. Think about that. Which is why then in verse 7 of chapter 16, after Asa did this, God sent Hanani the prophet to visit King Asa of Judah and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Did not the Cushites and the Libyans, in other words, the Ethiopians, have a huge army with chariots and a very large number of horsemen? But when you relied on the Lord, he handed them over to you then in this context is what Hanani the prophet says to Asa. Certainly, the Lord watches the whole earth carefully and is ready to strengthen those who are devoted to him. Let me share with you what Hanani is saying. First of all, he's saying this. He's using an anthropomorphic language. Obviously, God doesn't have eyes. But here's what he's saying about God's eyes if he had eyes. That his eyes are literally darting, moving rapidly over the earth at all times. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 9. And that he's looking, God is looking for opportunities to help and support. Think about that. It's exactly what John says. Our God isn't some uncaring, distant, could care less about what... No, God is actually always engaged and always looking throughout the whole earth, darting around, seeing, who can I help? Who can I support as God? He goes on to say, that help and support primarily comes from wanting to strengthen us. 
The words to strengthen, ready to strengthen, means to make strong, to make courageous, to make resolute, in order to prevail and withstand. That's what the word strengthen means. Think about it. God, up there in heaven, peering out over the the, the heavens, is looking down upon the earth He created, all of humanity, and His eyes continually go throughout the entire earth. He's just looking for people that are willing to be supported and helped by Him and strengthened by Him. But here's the key. They've got to be people who are willing to rely on Him rather than to rely on someone else or themselves. Because the whole key of this passage is God won't force His help or support on anyone. If you and I want to rely on something or someone else or ourselves, then God allows it. But the thing I want us to see tonight is how God burns the passion, the love that God has in wanting to help and support us at all times. If we would just learn to rely on Him, depend upon Him, He will always be there and more than willing to help and support. The truth that John is trying to describe that blows us away and that is illustrated here in this passage even from the Old Testament is that God is way more wanting to help and support us more than we really desire His help and support. And when you and I contemplate that, ponder that, reflect upon that, I hope that that stirs us a little bit. And maybe changes us a little bit. And changes the way we approach God and the way we interact with God. Because we are hearing the truth tonight that God can't wait to help and support people. The problem is that most of the time we're indifferent and we don't want... We would rather do it ourselves. Or like King Asa, we'll rely on something or someone else. The king of Syria. Instead of relying on God. Let me repeat this verse because I hope that this verse sticks with you like it has stuck with me. And remember the context of which this verse is found. 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9. Certainly, the Lord watches the whole earth carefully and is ready to strengthen those who are devoted to Him. Folks, I hope tonight that once again we have realized the wonder of God and the fact that God didn't stay up there in heaven. He came in the form of Jesus Christ. He did everything He did to get close to His creation, to get close to those He created. God always wants to be closer to us than we probably do to Him. In fact, we know that because even after we became Christians, James is trying to encourage us to, again, draw near to God so that he'll draw near. It's not that God doesn't want to be close to us. It's more like we don't want him too close. And here was King Asa, the king of Judah, who instead of relying on the Lord, relied on the king of Syria and missed out 
on an opportunity. God's plans for him was bigger than the plans he had for himself because God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. May we be encouraged tonight. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're dealing with, but I know this. I know that the God of the universe is looking down on your life right now, saying, my child, you are my child. I want to help and support you. Give me the opportunity. Rely on me. Depend upon me. And let me raise you up. Let me encourage you. Let me strengthen you. Let's leave here tonight being encouraged by the truth of God's Word. Hey, before we close in prayer tonight, just a couple of reminders. I would personally, again, appreciate those of you that can remember me in prayer on Thursday morning as I speak out at Bethel to a pretty big group of area pastors. I'll be speaking probably about uh, 9.30 that morning. Also, I wanted to mention this tonight, and I'll certainly mention this for the next couple of weeks leading up to this, for Mark's sake especially. 